Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. As many of you know, this past Tuesday was President Trump's first State of the Union address, and this is a practice that's based on Article 2, Section 3 of the U.S. Constitution. But in modern times, this speech obviously has turned into a lot of political drama with in theater with uh, the Democrats and Republicans, either standing and clapping or sitting and scowling, depending on what's being said. One of the interesting things is to watch them kind of look at each other. Are we supposed to clap for this or scowl for this? And that was not the original intent. The original intent in the Constitution was to make sure that the Congress, and therefore the nation, knew what the president did about the state of the union. Now, that's important, whether it's a nation or whether it's a church. So as we're celebrating the beginning of our 30th year as a church, I wanted to give you a state of the church address, an honest assessment of how we are doing uh, as a church, kind of minus all the applause and hopefully all the scowls that went with the State of Union address on Tuesday. Now, the state of any organization depends in part on how well they face and overcome the challenges and obstacles that every organization faces. Before I became the pastor here at Seabreeze, I was the president of a medium-sized advertising agency. And as I transitioned out of the marketplace into ministry, I realized pretty early on that there, there's just a lot of similarities between how, say, a business is organized and how a church is organized. I mean, both the business I was a part of and the church has organizational chart. Even if it's not identified clearly, it's usually understood with job descriptions telling us who's responsible for what and who's leading what and who's over who on the organization. That's true whether it's in business or in church. Both the business and the church has to manage money and give an account of their finances, and there's other similarities that go on. But it didn't take me long into the ministry side of things to realize that there were some pretty big differences between the church and business, particularly in how they overcome four of the challenges that every organization faces. And so as I talk about the state of Seabreeze today, I want to approach it from the angle of these four challenges, describe the challenges to you, and then explain to you how I assess us as a church, how we are facing these particular challenges. So let's begin. Challenge number one that every organization faces is their message. Now, when it comes to a church, that's a particular big challenge because the message of the church is a mystery. Here's what I mean. When I was in advertising, our business was to help uh, companies sell their products. And a key to that was for them to get very, very clear on what their message was and then to help them communicate that message as, as clearly and compellingly as we could. And the reason that's important for any business is because there's a lot of messages out there competing for the attention of the public. And if you're not clear and you're not compelling, then you don't have a chance at making a dent in the marketplace. So what is the message of the church that we are trying to make clear and compelling? Well, this is the message that we have. This is a copy of my Bible. These are the words of God revealed to us in the pages of the Bible. Now, as a former advertising executive, I can promise you this cannot be reduced to a slogan or a jingle. You cannot tweet this. There's too much here. This is one of the challenges that we face. In fact, the Apostle Paul, early church planner, describes the message of the church this way. He's talking about his decision to follow Christ, and now he's a part of serving the church, and he says this, I have become its servant, speaking of the church, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. 
And this is his description of the word in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints, those who've decided to follow Christ. So Paul is saying, first of all, when I decided to follow Christ, what happened automatically with that decision is I became a servant of the church, of Christ's body. That's not a separate decision. That's a part of the first decision. Some people think that you decide to follow Jesus, and then if you kind of want an upgraded plan, then you decide maybe to be a part of the church. But in the New Testament, it's all one decision. It's kind of like marriage. You decide to get married, and it's not an upgraded decision to say, well, you know what, let's go ahead and live together too. That's kind of implied in the decision to get married. So when you decide to follow Christ, like Paul, you become a servant of the church. And as its servant, we receive the commission that every servant of the church receives, and that is to present the Word of God in its fullness. So 2,000 years later now, the commission of the church is unchanged. The message of the church is unchanged. God's words revealed in the pages of the Bible are unchanged. And we are to communicate all of what God has said in the pages of the Bible. Now, that's a particularly big challenge for at least two reasons. One is, as I mentioned, there's a lot of words in the Bible. In fact, today, I'm only talking about nine verses that are in this book. Nine verses out of 31,102 verses. So what that means is, if you're going to learn all of God's Word in its fullness, you're going to have to do more than just attend here on Sundays. You're going to have to read it for yourself. You're going to have to study it for yourself if you're going to learn God's Word in all of its fullness. The challenge that we face, particularly right now in this culture, is we are a culture that reads less and less. And we read at a lower and lower level. Right now, novels that are published are published at a fourth grade reading level. The reason is because if you publish at a higher reading level, the books just don't sell. When it comes to the pages of the Bible, they are written on average at an 11th grade reading level. So that's a big challenge as we try to get the message of God's words out to the culture. And there's a a second challenge that comes with getting this message out, and that is the Word of God is a mystery. This is what Paul says. It's a mystery. What that means is it's it's something that that takes some time to think about sometimes and and, and takes some time to unravel and, and understand and explain. And for us to really understand these words, we honestly, we need help. We need help from God because he discloses, as it says, to us an understanding of these words. But we have to put in the time to solve a mystery. Like any mystery, you can't just glance at it and think that it's just going to come to your mind. You've got to stop, and you've got to ponder it, and you've got to figure it out. Now, I think there's nothing more exciting than unlocking one of the mysteries in God's Word. I I, I love nothing more than to take a paragraph or a few verses that at first glance I read through and think, I'm not sure what that means. And to put in the time that's needed and the thought that's needed, sometimes it's just five or ten minutes, you know, at a time over a period of months, and finally the light will go off and I'll have a deeper understanding of it. That's, That's so exciting. And I know many of you know how exciting that is. But it takes time. Not just time alone with the Bible, but also with the saints. God reveals it not just to individuals, but to the saints, to those who've decided to follow Christ. Now, when it comes to the state of Seabreeze in this regard, I'm pleased to report that I think the state of this church is becoming stronger and stronger in this regard. And the reason is because 
more and more of you as the years go by are putting in more and more time to learn God's Word. I want to reference one of the inserts in your program. It's the State of the Church insert, and there's a lot of kind of numbers and facts on here that you can look um, later at, but I want to focus on a few numbers in this section. The first number is 514. We'll highlight the number on the screen behind us. But in 2017, last year, 514 unique individuals were involved in one of our growth groups, many involved in multiple growth groups this past year. Now, a growth group here at Seabreeze meets for, oh, eight or ten weeks, about an hour and a half, once a week, usually in the evenings. And the purpose of a growth group is to take some part of God's Word, oftentimes it's based on what we've talked in the message the previous Sunday, and to have a discussion about, you know, what does this mean, and to hear from other people, and to work at figuring out how do we build this into our life. 514 people who are very busy and have lots going on in their life last year decided to take the time to study and to to work together on understanding God's Word and all of its fullness together with other people. Now, that's amazing to me. There's another number I want to focus on, and that is the number 38. There are 38 individuals who are in the Horizon training program. Now, this is a new training program that we began last September, and it's an eight-month orientation to the key values in the Bible. So 38 individuals are about in the midpoint of this study kind of looking at what are the key themes in the pages of God's Word. And this will help them tremendously as they begin to study more and more of God's Word. 38. The next number is 63. Last year, 2017, there were 63 in North Star. Uh, North Star is a training program that's a two-year training program. In the first year of North Star, you read through the entire Bible. Many people who have made a decision to follow Jesus have never read all of the Bible from the front to the back. And in North Star, we do that and, and a lot more than that. And so last year, 63 were involved in this. A number of them graduated uh, at the end of the spring, and a number are continuing on in year two right now and started year one this past fall. That's a big commitment. Again, these are not people who don't have jobs and nothing else going on in their lives. These are people who have decided to make a priority of understanding the message that God has given us in the pages of the Bible. I think that's amazing. And that's why I think the capital or the, the, the message of the church is growing more and more because people are taking the time to really figure this out. In fact, I want to give you a little challenge related to that for all of us. I want you to take out the next insert um, in the Bible or in the Bible in the connection. No, what is it? Program. That's what it is. I want you to take this out. This is Lent at Seabreeze. Now, Lent starts a week from this Wednesday uh, on Valentine's Day, the 14th. And Lent is just a tradition of the church to kind of prepare ourselves to uh, celebrate Easter. And so you can see on the, big, on the front of this card some of the items that are usually a part of Lent, and you can decide which one of those you want to do. But the, the core thing I want to challenge you to do is the, the daily reading during the period of Lent, the 40 or so days of Lent. And you'll see this on the back of the card. And what this is basically is this is the last week of Jesus' life in chronological order. So I would encourage you to just take the, the time that it requires in the days of Lent to, together with us as a church, read the life of Jesus leading up to our celebration of Easter. And if you're interested in doing that, we'd love to know how many of us are doing this together. And so on the back of the connection card, there's a box that you can check that just says, yeah, I, I want to do this. Now, we're not going to check up on you, but this is just your indication that you really want to do this. 
These are many, one of many ways we do this to try to help you learn more and more about what's in the pages of the Bible. The second challenge, organizational challenge, that every organization faces is the challenge of unity. And when it comes to the church, it's a very big challenge because the unity of the church tends to be pretty precarious. You know, the strength, as I said, of any organization rises and falls on the unity of the organization. If people can't work together towards a common goal, then the organization can't move forward. Now, the challenge of unity is this. Every individual comes with their own background, their own set of motives, and their own ideas and agendas. And just because you put people together in a room doesn't mean all of a sudden they think alike and they want the same things and they solve problems the same way. Everyone is still individuals. And so in order for an organization to be able to to move in a common direction, there needs to be an overarching unifying motive that supersedes all of the individual motives that are represented. Now, when it comes to business, what's the unifying motive that pulls people together? It's money. That's not bad. That's just the way business is. Business exists to make money, and we all need money. So we work at companies, and we work with other people because, not because we agree with everyone all the time, but because we all need some money. And that motive unites us. Now, there's still many other motives and agendas, but usually money is the biggest motive in a company, in a business. The reason you know this to be true is if you stop paying people, they'd stop showing up. That's why they're there, for the money. Now, there may be other motives a little further down, but you stop the money from flowing and the people are not going to be there. So the need for money is so powerful that it can pull very, very different people, very different motivations and very different agendas together towards a common goal in unity. You know, people will put up with a whole lot for a paycheck. They'll put up with a lot of disagreement, a lot of, I don't know what's going on, but they're still paying me, and they'll keep moving forward because of the paycheck. Now, the church is different. See, the church, on the other hand, is largely a volunteer organization. In fact, rather than pay people to be a part, the people who are a part give money needed to advance the church. I mean, near the end of this message, we're going to pass offering buckets. And people will contribute, and that's how this church moves forward. You know, business could never do that. Hey, we're not going to pay you. In fact, at the end of every week, we're going to take a collection that's going to allow the organization to go forward. (laughs) No one's going to do that in a business. You're not there for that. So in order for unity to happen in a church, there needs to be a motivation, a unifying motivation that's more powerful than money. Now, that's hard to come up with not just in this culture, but throughout any human history. So what is it that moves people to come together in a church? Well, it's the Holy Spirit that moves us. When a person decides to follow Christ, God sends his presence to to dwell inside of our hearts. It's called the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit begins to move us in some different directions. There's some things that we want now out of life that align with what God wants that we didn't want before. There's some agendas that are new and they come from God that are his agendas and not necessarily our old agendas. And that allows a group of people to come together and move towards the things that God really wants done in in an area, in a community. Now, the good news is this. When a person is moved on the inside by the actual presence of God, the Holy Spirit, 
That's a much deeper motivation than just money. The bad news is this. It sometimes takes a long time for the Holy Spirit to move people on the inside. I mean, money, well, that happens instant, right? If I gave you $1,000, when would you be motivated? Then, right as soon as I gave you $1,000, you'd be motivated. The Holy Spirit comes in, and you're starting to maybe get a little bit motivated. And then next week, maybe a little bit more. And then next month, and it might be two or three years before you say, you know what? I really do want to do some things in this direction. It just takes time, and it's different for every person. The Holy Spirit brings unity in the church through the bond of peace. That's how unity occurs. Ephesians 4, 3 says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The bond of peace is the goodwill that exists between people who love each other. That's the bond. And these bonds don't just occur naturally. They are built over time as we serve each other, as we help each other. And the bonds are broken as we hurt each other and as we don't clear up the wrong that's done between us. So it takes a lot of effort to create the conduits, the bonds through which the Holy Spirit can move us in unity as a church. As it says in this verse, it takes every effort, not just an occasional effort, but every effort. It takes a lot of effort to forgive. It takes a lot of effort to talk face-to-face to someone that you're irritated with rather than behind the back of them that you're irritated with or disagree with. It takes a lot of effort to follow leaders and not grumble. Those are the bonds of peace. You see, large groups of people don't just naturally agree on every detail that's needed to work together. You get a group of people in a room, and they're going to have as many ideas of what to do as there are people. And so for any organization, there has to be leaders, and leaders have to decide what we're going to do, when we're going to meet, and who's going to do what. Now, in a business, the leaders are followed because, well, they write the paychecks. But in a church, the leaders are followed because people want to follow them. Now, we all tend to want to follow leaders that we agree with. In our mind, those are great leaders. Why? We agree with them. But when we disagree with the leader, the wanting stops. We don't want to, we don't want to follow them anymore. They're, we disagree with them. Now, again, as I said, in a business, people can disagree with the leaders and still work together because... They're getting a paycheck. But in church, there's no financial incentive to follow. So every time people disagree, unity is in jeopardy. So why do people follow in a church? The reason, again, is the Holy Spirit helps them see that they're not just following a human leader. They realize that Jesus is the head of the body, the church, and that he is leading through leaders, through people. Now, that doesn't mean they trust every person who claims to lead in the name of Christ. They check the leaders out to make sure that there really seems to be a person who honestly is following Christ and leading well. But they recognize that they don't have to understand everything. They don't have to see everything because Jesus is leading through these people. And so even if I disagree, Jesus is in charge and I I can move forward. Now, in a business, that would never work. 
You know, in a business, the head of an organization is visible, but access to them is pretty limited, especially if the organization is large. You know, for example, if you work for Disney, the CEO of Disney is Bob Iger. If you work for Disney, you probably don't have a personal relationship with Bob Iger. So what that means is if your boss tells you to act on a new idea or a new directive coming from the top, coming from Bob Iger's office, you have no way to question it. You're not going to get on the phone and say, Bob, is this really true? Am I really supposed to focus on this project and not this project? I mean, you can try to call Bob Iger's office, but I promise you, you're not getting through. You're going to have to follow your immediate supervisor who is taking direction all the way from the CEO office. But in a church, it's a very opposite dynamic. You see, the head of the organization, the church, is Jesus Christ. And he is not visible. I mean, he was 2,000 years ago, but he's not walking around now. But everyone in the church has a personal relationship with him. Everyone who's a Christian has a personal relationship with him. So here's what happens in the church. The leadership decides to move in this direction, and everyone calls up Jesus and says, Jesus, what do you think? Is this, is this really what we should do? And depending on how they process that, they come back and say, hey, who are you? Jesus told me that we should be doing this. And Jesus told them that we should be doing this. And Jesus told them that we should be doing that. And this is the challenge in the church. Everyone's got a personal relationship with Jesus. But Jesus doesn't show up visibly to set the record straight. I mean, imagine if everyone at your work had a personal relationship with the CEO, but the CEO never showed up to work. I mean, how, how could anything move forward? Everyone could say, uh-uh, my CEO says this is what we should do. And so, like most churches, we have gone through periods of turmoil when leadership has been disagreed with and has been questioned and, in some cases, has been attacked. And the unity has, boy, it's really fractured. But as far as I can tell, now is not one of those times. Again and again, I'm amazed at how many of you decide to follow and trust me and the other leaders of this church. And I know it's not because you agree with every single decision that's made. I mean, I know that because I don't agree with every decision that's made. I don't agree with every decision I make. I mean, I'll make a decision and think, I hope this is the right decision. You know, eventually you got to make, make a call, and I'm not sure. I think so. I think this is what God wants us to do. But sometimes I'll get one day into it, one week into it, and think, ooh, I hope this was okay. So I know you've got to be wondering sometimes, what's he thinking? He's thinking, I hope this is okay. <laughs> and I hope God is able to lead through even someone like me. I mean, I'm working hard, and we've got a lot of help, but eventually leaders need to lead, and people need to decide to join in. And I know the only reason that we're able to move forward over time in unity is because the Holy Spirit has pulled us together and has moved us through the bonds of peace in this church. And that's why, I mean, particularly those of you who have been at Seabreeze for decades, I mean, I, I, I greatly appreciate your willingness to follow me over that period of time. I mean, only God could do that in your heart because I get tired of me. So I'm grateful for the unity that God has brought in this church over time.
And that brings us to the third obstacle every organization faces, and that is the mission. Mission clarity. It's critical for every organization. Now, the challenge when it comes to the church is the mission of the church is complex. It's complex. When I was in advertising, we focused on providing creative services for local and regional companies with annual sales between $1 million and $10 million. That was the niche in the marketplace that we focused on. Now, we didn't start that way, but we learned. We went after a few national accounts and just, it was a disaster. We couldn't make any money on those kinds of things, and we spent a lot of money pitching that kind of stuff, and we just, we just weren't impressive enough to land a lot of accounts. And so we realized, you know, if it's more than $10 million, it's just not worth our time. And then we pursued some business from companies that had less than a million dollars in annual sales. And for a bunch of different reasons, we just couldn't make money on those people. Our niche was local and regional, $1 to $10 million in annual sales. So we focused on that, and we were able to flourish once we got our mission razor clear, a laser focus on what we were doing. And that's the nature of business, really, most organizations. You, you find a niche, you find a focus, and then you go after it. The problem when it comes to the church is there's some things that we can get laser clear on and focus on, but our mission is so complex that it's really hard to narrow it down. For example, we can't limit ourselves just to single adults ages 25 to 30. You know, right now, the young adults are up in Big Bear at a retreat. But that's just a part of the church. If we could just focus on adults, young single adults, age 25 to 30, we could design all of our music that direction. We could design all of our marketing that direction. We could design our online presence that direction. I don't know. I'd have to figure out how to speak in a different way, just if we're just going to focus on 25 to 30-year-olds probably. I mean, we could really hone in on that and probably grow that segment of the church. But we can't just narrow our focus to one group. And the reason is because our mission is so broad and so complex. Jesus made the mission really clear in Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Elliot talked about these verses a couple Sundays ago. But let me read them again. Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples of how many nations? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey how much? Everything I've commanded you. So how many people should we focus on? Everyone. So what that means is we need to keep looking for ways to reach more people, not just single adults ages 25 to 30, but everyone who lives here. And then that's not just enough to kind of reach them. We need to then teach them to obey how much of what Jesus said? Everything. Now, that's a lot, especially when you consider that much of what Jesus taught was based on what God had already said in the Old Testament. So the entire book, the entire revelation of God needs to be understood and over time built into a person's life. You know, it's not enough for us just to upload the content onto the web and say, hey, it's there if you need help. No, we we need to actually walk alongside people in the details of life and help those who really want to learn, help them learn how to do what it says, not just understand what it says, not just have the light go off and say, oh, I know what this means, I can answer it on a test, but answer it in life. So oftentimes, I ask myself the question about Seabreeze and say, well, should, should, 
Should Seabreeze be doing more than we're doing already? And the answer is always yes. There are more people to reach. There are more nations in the world that we don't have partnerships with, and so we need to be open to considering wherever God wants us to partner. And the other question is, that I often ask is, should we be doing better as a church? You know what the answer to that always is? Yes, we should. Because none of us have reached the point where we're obeying everything Jesus taught. So there, there's a lot of room for growth. It's just, it's just an ongoing process. Back in 2005, my wife and I were asked to be a part of a gathering of church leaders in Ghana, Africa. There's a picture of the gathering in uh, Tamale, northern part of Ghana. And the theme of the conference, you can see it in the middle, was, uh, let's point to the next line, was everyone, everywhere. Now, when I showed up to this conference, saw that sign, I mean, I didn't do it visibly, but on the inside, I just, I couldn't stop laughing. Not out of mockery, but it's just, really, everyone, everywhere? And out of my business background, I thought, you would never attend a conference that was focused on everyone everywhere because that's not focus. I mean, every business conference is, here's how to do this particular thing, and here's, it's for this particular industry, and it's for these. But if you try to start a business conference and say, who's invited this? Everyone. And what are we going to be talking about? Everything? Where are we going to be doing this? Everywhere? It's like, well, so we're not going to actually do anything? I mean, how, how could you focus on that? But once I stopped kind of just cracking up at the enormity of this statement, I realized it actually is a very accurate statement of the mission of the church. Everyone, everywhere. So the question is, how is it possible to carry out such a vast and a complex mission? Well, notice the statement above on that sign. Partnering, we can This is the mission that God has put us on. But we're limited. I'm limited. As a church, we're limited. But as we do our part, as increasing numbers of people decide, you know what, I want to offer the gifts that God has given me to do my part, then we can reach more of everyone and more of everywhere. And that's one of the things that I am particularly excited about the state of Seabreeze right now. So back on this State of the Church insert. There's two other numbers I want to focus on, and this is under the serving section. The first number is 428. 428 individuals, individuals served on Sundays back in 2017. Many of them didn't just serve once. They served over and over and over and over again just to allow this to occur. And then the second one is amazing. 329 of you served in service projects that we did in our community to meet just different needs in our community. You know what this says to me? This says that an increasing number of you are coming to understand that this place is not just a place to gather on Sundays and learn a few things and then go off and do our life. This church is that, but it is primarily an opportunity to do our part, to serve. And as more and more people see that, and as more and more people say, you know what, I need to do my part, then, as I said, we can reach more. So the state of Seabreeze is increasingly strong. 
when it comes to our mission, because so many of you are doing your part. And that brings us to the last challenge every organization faces, and that is capital. Every organization needs capital, money, to move forward. Now, when it comes to Seabreeze and the church in general, we have a unique challenge in this area, and that is because the capital of the church primarily is affliction, not money. Suffering, struggle. Well, doesn't that sound great? Let me explain what I mean. In business, capital refers to the financial assets of a company. So the business that I led, the advertising agency I led before coming here, was, was a new startup. In fact, it was just me and the owner that started it. Eventually, we had about 25 employees, but at the beginning, it was just me and the owner. And because I, I was in on the ground floor of a new business startup, I learned that the reason most business startups fail is not because they don't have good ideas, but it's because they are undercapitalized. So if you're getting ready to start a new business and you think you need a million dollars, trust me, you need five million dollars. At least. You have no idea how fast you can burn through capital in a new startup. So we had a bunch of new and exciting ideas, but every one of those ideas required capital. And if we had the capital, if we had the money, well, then we could hire the people. We could purchase the equipment, maybe, that we needed. And we could grow the business in that area because we had capital. It is the fuel that moves the organization forward. If we didn't have the capital, it didn't matter how great the idea was. It didn't matter how dominant it would be in the market. We couldn't bring it to the market. We didn't have the capital. So we'd stop. Now, the church also needs money. But the real capital that moves us forward is much more than just money. It's affliction, individual sacrifice and suffering. Here's what Paul says in the verse previous to the ones we read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. And I fill up in my flesh, in my body, what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. So the Apostle Paul, again, is writing to the church in the town of Colossae. It was located in what is now southwest Turkey. Now, he'd never been to this church. In fact, he's writing this letter from a prison cell in Rome, awaiting trial before Caesar. Things are looking really bad for Paul. And they're looking really bad for the early church. So in this part of the letter, Paul is explaining to them why it is that he and they are suffering so much, why life is so hard, why there's so many afflictions. And his point is this, affliction, suffering, is how the church got started. Jesus, the founder of the church, was the first one to be afflicted. And it's how the church is going to move forward. It's always been the capital of the church, the real capital of the church. The first one to suffer for the church was Jesus. He suffered on a cross to purchase our forgiveness and lay the foundation of the church here on earth. Now what Paul says is having laid that foundation, we get to add our afflictions, our suffering to his. And Paul says... I rejoice in that. that. That is a tremendous privilege. I mean, we're all going to struggle. We're all going to suffer. But to do it for this, to have a purpose like this, well, what a privilege. 
Let me show you an illustration of what this verse is saying. Here's the container. Represents the afflictions of Christ. And on those afflictions, the church floats. Rises and falls based on whether or not people are willing to add to the afflictions of Christ. It's for the sake of the church. So the sacrifice of Christ on the cross isn't the only affliction that goes into this container. As his followers, we get to pour our struggles, our suffering into that container. Now, granted, they are small in comparison to his, but you know it all adds up. And the interesting thing Paul says is the container isn't full yet. When Christ died on the cross, it wasn't like, okay, that's all the suffering that's ever going to be done for the church. It's like, oh no, that was the first capital N, the first of a lot of suffering and a lot of struggling. So he says the container isn't full yet. You know, what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions? And so the church really advances and rises as we struggle. Do you know where the church is growing more than any other place in the world right now? Iran. It's growing faster in Iran than any other place. Why? Boy, they are afflicted. They are struggling beyond. This has always been true of the history of the church. You can look for some of the hardest places in the world, and the church is growing more rapidly there than any other place. Before Iran, it was China. China's still growing much faster. So what do we do? Do we got to move to Iran then as a church? No, there's, there's still plenty of affliction and suffering going on, even in Orange County. So why, why is struggle the capital of the church? Well, the reason is this. Our mission as a church is to point people to the unseen God and an unseen eternity. And that requires a tremendous shift in focus. To get people to live, to get us, and to convince other people to live this life for the God you cannot see, and for a future that no one's seen. How would, how would that ever occur? Well, Paul says this is how it occurs. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, he says, Therefore, we don't lose heart when we're afflicted, when we're suffering. suffering. Why? Because outwardly, we are wasting away. There, there's no denying. This, you know, things are getting worse. Yet, inwardly, in the invisible part of us, it's changing us. We're being renewed day by day. Here's what's going on, Paul says. Our light and momentary troubles, and by the way, just to define light and momentary, Paul's talking about being shipwrecked and bitten by a poisonous snake and almost dying. Not just a bad Monday. You know, this is what Paul says is light and momentary troubles. They're accomplishing something. They're, they're not just pain for pain's sake. They're achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs all the suffering. In other words, when we, from the perspective of eternity, we look back at our suffering, we will see it as light and momentary compared to what we're experiencing then. The problem is, it doesn't feel like that now. So what do we do? We fix. We choose to fix our eyes, not on what we see, but on what is unseen. Why? Because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So let's... Let's talk about this verse from the end backwards. Let's take that last statement. What is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, I imagine in a room like this, most of you would agree with that statement. Most of you would agree with, you know, everything that we see is temporary. I mean, we've seen evidences that things fade. 
So we, we, most of us probably know in our minds, you know what? All the money I got in my bank account, my house, all the plans I got for retirement, everything, eventually that's going to be all gone because I'll, I'll be gone. But what is unseen, the God I can't see, the next life that I can't see, that's going to go on forever. I imagine most people here would say, I, I agree with that. But here's the problem. You may agree with that statement, but the truth for most of us, I would say for all of us, is that our lives tend to be dominated by what we see. I mean, that, that's what gets our focus. That's what our emotions rise and fall. I mean, if, if your emotions go in the tank this next week, it's not because something changed in the unseen world. It's not because God suddenly changed and heaven suddenly was redone in a way you don't like. No, it's because something in the seen world has happened that's been really hard. So what would it take for people to, as it says here, the next statement up, fix their eyes not on what they see, but on what they can't see? What would it take for that to happen? Well, it's going to require trouble in the visible world, in the momentary world. It's going to require affliction. Now, the good news is that the world is full of affliction and trouble, even here in Orange County. The bad news, though, is that we're all so busy working on our own little bit of trouble that we tend to have little time to care about the trouble in the lives of people around us. So most people are suffering in silence, in isolation. Everyone presents themselves as, you know, everything's fine. And so the unseen world goes on ignored. You know, one of my favorite parts, though, about Seabreeze over the years is how authentic you are. As I've listened to the people of this church talk over the years, it's become pretty clear to me that most of you don't see yourself as any better than anyone else. And you know why? Because you've been kind of beat up in life. You've been afflicted. And you know what that does? That makes you one of the first people that someone who is struggling just might go to for help. I mean, if you're struggling, you're going to go to someone that thinks they're better than you? No. And so I think the capital of this church is very strong when it comes to this. Now, not Iran strong or China strong, but Orange County strong. That's where God has us. Many of you are struggling. You are afflicted. And that has expanded your heart for the people around you who are struggling. You see, the joy is never the affliction. Nobody says, oh, great, a bad week. No, the joy is never the affliction. The joy is watching God turn our struggles into changed lives in our own life and then changed lives in other people's lives. That's the purpose behind the affliction. You know, I'm often asked to add something to what we do here at Seabreeze, you know, some project or some program. And if it's a good idea, my response is often the same. I really would like to see that in our future. But... It's going to require some money, but mostly it's going to require some qualified leaders who are willing to lead, who have been qualified by their own struggles and qualified by their own understanding of God's Word to actually lead in that area. And until that time, we, we don't have the capital. We can't do that. And so as we look to the future of Seabreeze, the, the big question will always be this. Will we sacrifice for the sake of the church?
And for many of us who have been around here for several decades, the question is, will we sacrifice any more? Because we've already sacrificed. Now, again, not Jesus level, not Paul level, but, you know, for us, it can feel like enough. Why? Well, because it's very easy for us to buy into the lie of our culture, and that is that this life is really all about coming up with as much comfort as we possibly can. And the version of this lie that's predominant in our culture right now is we need to spend our life preparing not for heaven, but for retirement. That's as far as we see. And so we are willing to suffer and to struggle so we can squirrel away enough money so that we can at least spend 10 or 20 years just <gasps> blissed out on doing whatever we want to do. Now, the challenge with that, I, I've had a glimpse into the future. And this is what I've seen. Getting old is really not that fun. I mean, so far it hasn't been fun for me getting older. And I know some of you have got great health and you're just like, seeing all the amazing things in the world, but you know, there's a lot of people who are really suffering as they age out. There's a lot of afflictions. And God keeps trying to get us to see, you know, <laughs> fix your eyes on what is unseen. Now, it's fine to prepare for retirement. I'm preparing for retirement. I don't want to be a burden on my family. But don't, don't live the lie that the best thing you're ever going to experience is some form of retirement. The best thing you're ever going to experience is heaven. So leverage now for then rather than try to create heaven somewhere here on earth. Do it for then. You see, we need to see the church, I think, the way Paul did. A privilege beyond measure that we get to suffer for and sacrifice for and advance on our own sacrifice. So as we conclude today, we're going to remember the sacrifice of Christ for the sake of the church. So I want to invite the ushers to come forward and begin to hand out the communion cups. Now, as they're handing these out, if, if you're here and you've yet to decide to follow Jesus Christ, I, I just encourage you to kind of let the cup pass. We're not going to embarrass you in any way, but Scripture is very clear. This is for those of us who've already made the decision. So if you're just kind of figuring this out, we're so glad you're here, but just let this pass. And this comes from um, something that Jesus started on the, the eve of his crucifixion. And by the way, the bread and the juice are all in one package, so just go ahead and hang on to that, and I will lead us through that in just a little bit. But on the eve of Jesus' sacrifice, he had the Passover meal with his disciples. And at the beginning of the meal, he took up a piece of bread, unleavened bread, which would be kind of like crackers, and, and he broke it. And as it broke and the pieces fell all over the place, he said, you know, this, this is what's about to happen to me physically. My body is going to be beaten and broken into pieces. And literally, pieces were flogged off of Jesus' body. So my body is going to be broken for you. And then at the end of the meal, he poured some wine into a cup, and he said that his own blood was about to be poured out just like this wine, this red wine was. And it was going to be a sacrifice for us, an offer of forgiveness that is written in his blood, forgiveness that he would pay for. And then he told his disciples and all of us who would decide to follow him in the future to do this in remembrance of him, to eat broken pieces of leavened bread and to drink of the vine, wine or juice, to remember his affliction for the sake of the church.
Because what Jesus suffered 2,000 years ago on that cross wasn't just for us as individuals. It was for the sake of his body, this verse says, which is the church. It was his sacrifice, his afflictions, his capital that started the church. And now we remember the price that he paid, and we decide to add our sacrifice to his. So as we do this, I invite you not only to remember the afflictions of Christ for you, but to join me in deciding maybe for the first time or maybe for the 538th time to fill up in your flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. So first, peel back the the communion to get at the little piece of bread here. Take that out. Now, in the words of Jesus, who on that night 2,000 years ago said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat this together in remembrance of him. Now, go ahead and peel back the next part. Be careful, this is a little tricky to get at the juice. Then the words that Jesus said at the end of that Passover meal, where he lifted the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Join me in prayer. Jesus, we um, remember the price that you paid. You didn't just check a box that granted us forgiveness you paid the price with your own body you suffered you endured torture and you allowed your life to be drained over hours of pain and any affliction that we add to that is boy it's very small in comparison but your affliction reminds us of the path that we're on we live in a culture that's all about scrambling as much towards comfort as possible. And we thank you for the comfort of this culture, but it's as we sacrifice, it's as we turn our suffering and afflictions into reaching out to people who are struggling that, that your purpose is really accomplished. So Jesus, we have remembered your sacrifice for us, and we now, as we move forward as a church, we stand ready to sacrifice for the church. We ask that you would show us what that means in this coming year and what that looks like. Help us to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Because what is seen, that's, that's going to disappear. But what is unseen, one day that will appear and will never disappear. Help us, we pray, and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.